scripture reading this morning will be from 1 Samuel chapter 2, and I will read verses 1 through 10. 1 Samuel 2, 1. Then Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth speaks boldly against my enemies, because I rejoice in thy salvation. There is no one holy like the Lord. Indeed, there is no one besides thee, nor is there any rock like our God. Boast no more so very proudly. Do not let arrogance come out of your mouth, for the Lord is a God of knowledge, and with him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are shattered, but the feeble gird on strength. Those who are full hire themselves out for bread, but those who are hungry cease to hunger. Even the barren gives birth to seven, but she who has many children languishes. The Lord kills and makes alive. He brings down to Sheol and he raises up. The Lord makes poor and rich. He brings low, he also exalts. He raises the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with nobles and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and he set the world on them. He keeps the feet of his godly ones, but the wicked ones are silenced in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. Those who contend with the Lord will be shattered. Against them he will thunder in the heavens. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth, and he will give strength to his king and will exalt the horn of his anointed. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much again for all that you have revealed to us of yourself. We thank you that you are good and holy and righteous, and that you will never be anything other than what you are this day. Thank you, God, that you are unchanging and faithful and true. And Lord, we come together in the name of your Son, the Lord Jesus, that we might know him, exalt him, and that we would be here as worshipers of him alone. And so we pray, God, for your work in our hearts, that you would truly be honored and exalted as the God worthy of all praise that you are. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> I wanted to um, follow up a little bit more on the um, story of Hannah and her son Eli in this second chapter of First Samuel. It's also um, a story about the sons of Phineas. Um, I'm sorry, the sons of um, um, of Eli, the high priest. Um, but we're going to focus on Samuel and Hannah. Um, the the first thing that comes to mind, obviously, I think for all of us as we um, just went through this prayer of Hannah, is the great joy she has in seeing how God has performed on her behalf. It is a joy that comes out of surrender. And that strikes me as being an oxymoron, um, a, a, which we know is a figure of speech or a phrase that seems inherently contradictory. The joy of surrender. Contradictory inherently like jumbo shrimp um, or government efficiency um, 
or military intelligence. You know, these, we all make fun of these things as being oxymorons, as being paradoxes. And, and truly, if you think about it, we, we know, hopefully we do, in our own experience, in fact, our, our very salvation experience is usually birthed out of great understanding of personal need. I need a Savior. My sin is something that separates me from God, and I am totally incapable of doing anything about it. And so out of that sorrow for our sin is birth surrender, and in that surrender, joy. The joy of surrender. It doesn't seem in itself, because the, the, whole, the whole concept of surrender is there is something to, that is defeating me, and I'm striving against and I have to just give up in defeat. And contrary to what we would think, because we don't see this in much of life, is that when we come to that place of surrender, it is actually the beginning, the beginning of life. It is, not a, it, it's, it is it's a place of death, but it's from death in Christ that we come to know life. Hannah had been a place of what seemed to be living death. Every day, she was tormented by Penaniah, and she had had every reason according to their culture and to, to believe the words of Penaniah that it was because of her own sin that she was without children. She didn't turn against God. She didn't even turn against Penaniah, her tormentor. She turned to the Lord and said, God, I have no other hope than you. And God gave her a child. And these first 10 verses here are her prayer. And one of the things that is interesting about this prayer, it comes with no request. It is a prayer without entreaty, a prayer without a request. It is truly a prayer of praise. And, and what she has to say about God here can only be birthed out of personal experience in coming to the end of herself and seeing God deliver her. The delivery in these circumstances were the giving of a son. But to apply it spiritually, and I believe we are meant to, it is not just about a barren woman being given a child. It's about barren people being given life. And the one who is the life giver is the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is when we come to that place of understanding our barrenness, our inability, that, that we are nothing but death itself, and we surrender completely to God, that we can find to be true in our hearts and true in our experience all that Hannah is talking about here. There's no greater theological education than to come to the end of yourself and to see God be your Savior. And this woman's theology is right on the mark. And it's been, again, birthed out of her own crushing circumstances, her own um, awareness and confession of her own inability, and seeing God do for her what she could not do for herself. So just to step through this briefly, and, and then I want to move over and, and, and look also um, briefly at Samuel. She prays and says, my heart exalts in the Lord. Not just my mouth, but my heart. This isn't the word exalt. And you can see in the next line, my horn is exalted in the Lord. 
This word exalt with a U is different than the word exalt with an A. Two different Hebrew words, two different Greek words. The word for exalt, when it's not being focused on God, is always translated boast. And so they're very, very similar words here. My heart, in other words, boast in the Lord. Not in myself, not in my ability, but simply in God alone. Reminds me of Paul's words at the end of Romans. He says, if I have to boast of anything, I will boast of what God has accomplished through me. I will not boast in myself. Paul said, if any man had any reason to take confidence in the flesh in Philippians, he says, I had more reason than most. And yet I count it all loss in view of the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ. My heart exalts, my heart boasts in the Lord. This, again, comes through not, 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 not in an absence of, but through the presence of crushing circumstances and seeing the, the, the emptiness and inability of her own heart and soul. Now she exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted. My strength is exalted in the Lord. My mouth speaks boldly against my enemies because I rejoice in thy salvation. And then these theological statements about God. There is no one holy like the Lord. Indeed, there is no one besides thee, nor is there any rock like our God. This is at the cusp of her sending her son away to live in the household of a man whose two grown sons are out of control. She is dismissing her son into the care of Eli. And yet she can do so with joy in her heart, a heart that exalts in God because she knows her trust is not Eli. Her trust is God, and it is not a misplaced trust. There is no one holy like him. There is no one other than him. There is no rock like him. I can trust God with my children, no matter what circumstances they're living in. Boast no more so very proudly, she's speaking of Penaniah. Do not let arrogance come out of your mouth, for the Lord is a God of knowledge. In other words, he knows. It's one of my favorite phrases whenever I'm going through trials. God knows. He knows what's happening to me. He knows the arrogance that's brought against us. He knows the pride. God knows. And he knows the hearts of all. And there is no one like God who is able to come against those things. And with him, actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are shattered, but the feeble gird on strength. Those who are full hire themselves out for bread, but those who are hunger, hungry cease to hunger. Even the barren gives birth to seven. Hannah had not given birth to seven. She will never give birth to seven, but she will give birth to six. She doesn't know that yet. But again, it's not about the number of children. Whether it's one or it's 20, she's going, God has done it. And God is the one who gives children. God is the one who gives salvation. My trust is not in myself. It is in the Lord. And whether it's one or many, the number seven, the number of perfection, it is God who does it. She who has many children, again speaking of Penaniah, languishes. The Lord kills and makes alive. 
Throughout the Old Testament, we see these people were very conversant with the doctrine of resurrection. They knew there's more to this life than the life that we're living now. Yes, God kills and God brings to life. Our trust is in him. And many times the life does not begin until it comes to an end. The Lord makes poor and rich. He brings low and he also exalts. He raises the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with nobles and inherit a seat of honor and pillars of the earth are the Lord's. And he set the world on them. He keeps the feet of his godly ones, but the wicked ones are silenced in darkness. Again, all that God is, it just is rolling out of her mouth as her heart exalts in God. Her circumstances have brought her to a closer understanding of who the Lord is. And her praise is not in a child that's come, but it is truly in God himself. When I stand back and look at this, obviously there are lessons that have come to Hannah in surrender. Lessons of what God is, lessons in what God does, lessons concerning man, and then a number of applications. What God is, he is absolutely unique. How do you know God is unique? Absolutely unique. Until you surrender to him. See, she knows these things. She knows I have a God that is like no other God. I have a Savior. I have one who is a rock. I have one who is holy. I have one who is for me. How do you know that? She knows these things because she's surrendered to him. He is absolutely unique. He is powerful. He is just. He is good. He is sovereign. He is omniscient. All of these things are things that she's saying in this prayer of praise. I know these things are true. And it came about as she went through this knot hole of pain and came out not crushed, but with life. She knows what God does. He exalts and he humbles. He makes strong and weak, rich and poor. He shatters those who contend against him. She knows this to be true because she has surrendered to him. And she knows man never prevails by his own might, but by the Lord. There is victory only in the Lord. She surrendered to him. She cried out to him. She yielded to him. She didn't contend with him. Jacob contended with God until God finally had to dislocate his hip. There is no hint of Hannah contending with God. Penaniah contended with her. She didn't turn against Penaniah, and she didn't turn against God. She surrendered with open hands, and she saw God be her Savior. So just a few brief applications from Hannah. Any area, is there any area of your life where you are totally defeated and frustrated. Guess what? You will not prevail by your own strength. And you will not prevail by anyone else's intervention. I want you to think about that. 
I mean, this is, this is why we gather together in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because we have no hope other than Jesus. We are, there is, in, in some area in all of our lives, where we are absolutely powerless. And we can live in defeat and frustration. We can cry out to others to help us. We can seek intervention from even the church. But there is no hope other than in the Lord. He is our rock. He is the one who is able. He is the one who is holy. The answer is to, in death as it were, to surrender to him. To confess the truth about our inability and that our only hope is him. God, you have got to do it. In joy, there is also pain. It's not just the joy of surrender. There is joy in surrender. But there's also pain. Mary had the joy of saying, Behold, the bondservant of the Lord, be it done unto me according to your word. And she saw Jesus come into this world. But she was also told, A sword shall pierce your own heart. With Jesus, we're told that for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising its shame. And Paul prayed that he might know the power of Christ's resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. It isn't all fun, but it is a life of resurrection through death. The application for that never ends. All of life, in one way or another, is coming to the end of ourselves and in that seeing that God is God and he is our deliverer. Samuel is a fascinating study. As I noted last week, he and Samson were contemporaries of each other probably knew each other. Both of them Nazarites from birth. Both of them had godly mothers who were true to what, the God, what God wanted them to do. When Manoah, the father of Samson, spoke to the angel of the Lord and said, how, am I, how are we supposed to raise this child and what will his mode of life be? The angel of the Lord said, I already told your wife, listen to her. Samson's mother, I tend to think, had all the influence on him that Samuel's mother had on him. Two boys, Nazarites from birth, set apart for the use of God, and they both had godly mothers who were training up their children to walk with God. Hannah only had her boy for three years. Samson's mom had him his entire childhood. Samson didn't walk with God for much of his life. He is one of the, uh, of the saints in the um, chapter on faith, heroes of faith, Hebrews 11. So we'll see him in heaven. But he lived a life of great compromise and not of separation. He enjoyed the Philistine company. He was supposed to be distinct from the Philistines. 
distinct even from the average Israelite. But there wasn't a dime's difference morally between him and any Philistine. And he certainly enjoyed being with them. Samuel, complete opposite. Started out the same as Samuel, as Samson. Both had godly mothers. Both were being pointed toward the Lord. But they didn't turn out the same. We should be encouraged by that. Listen to what it does say about Samuel. The end of chapter 1, the very last statement, verse 28. He worshipped the Lord there. We don't know for sure whether that he is in reference to Elkanah or to Eli or to Samuel. But typically the pronoun refers back to its nearest antecedent. And so that would mean Samuel worshipped the Lord there at three years old. Look at chapter 2, verse 11. Then Elkanah went to his home at Ramah, but the boy ministered to the Lord before Eli the priest at three years old. He is ministering to God. In verse 18, now Samuel was ministering before the Lord as a boy wearing a linen ephod. In verse 21, the boy Samuel grew before the Lord. Verse 26, the boy Samuel was growing in stature and favor both with the Lord and with men. Chapter 3, verse 1, the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord before Eli. Chapter 3, verse 19, then Samuel grew and the Lord was with him and let none of his words fail. Five times he's called the boy. Obviously, that's being impressed upon us. He's just a kid. And as a young boy, he is worshiping God and ministering to him. The first thing we know about Samuel is that he was dedicated to God from birth from even conception, dedicated to God. And then it, but that wasn't his choice. That was his mom's choice. And it would seem the father was in agreement with that. But he embraced this imposed separation as being from God. He surrendered to his mother's choice as being God's choice for him. No parent can make that happen. Samson's parents could not make Samson embrace the choice that God had placed upon him. And Hannah could not make Samuel embrace the choice that she had made. But Samuel did. At three, he worshipped God. Throughout his young, early childhood, he ministered to God. He grew in stature and favor with God and man, much as the scripture tells us Jesus kept increasing in wisdom and stature and favor with God and man in Luke 2.52. We're told the Lord was with him, and the Lord spoke to him, and the Lord spoke through him, and God confirmed him as a prophet of the Lord. And we're told that he lived among religious hypocrites and gross carnality, but he grew in the Lord. Those are seven statements that are told to us about Samuel as a young boy. 
Briefly again, he was dedicated to God. He embraced that dedication as his own. At three, he worshiped. Throughout his childhood, he ministered to God. He grew in stature and favor with man and God. The Lord was with him, spoke to him and through him, and confirmed him as a prophet of the Lord. And he lived among religious hypocrites and gross carnality, and yet he grew in the Lord. What are we supposed to take from those things? You know, there's no probably no area of life for a parent where he is tempted to be to take to be so condemned or to take such unwarranted pride as with his children. To be eaten up with guilt because our children are not doing well. Or to take a pride that we have no business taking because our children are doing well. So this is a very important section of scripture, I think, for all of us that have children. One thing we need to keep in mind, even if you don't have children, maybe it's little brothers and sisters, or maybe you're working with young children. Children, obviously, have a God-given capacity to worship and minister to God. And we should not underestimate it. Often, the most significant ministry, I believe, that's taking place in a church is what's taking place in the children's Sunday school classes. Those young children, a three-year-old child, can worship God. It's pretty amazing. Where does he learn that? Largely through mom and through dad. But, again, aside from the example of the parents, it starts with understanding the capacity of a young child. And they may not learn this at home. Maybe it's going to be somebody who's not family that God will use to bring them to faith in Christ, even at a very young, tender age. Children can worship God. I believe that we... As parents can model that. So we need to understand ourselves. What is worship? And what is ministry to God? We can't even agree when it comes to ministry to one another what that is. Churches are always fumbling on this. Every church has its own idea of what ministry to people looks like. I'm kind of the persuasion, if I don't know what ministry to God looks like, then I don't need to try and answer the second question. What does ministry to people look like? What is worship? We all appreciate good music. I certainly appreciate hearing Todd and Alex on Sunday mornings. It's balm to the soul. We, We need to sing unto the Lord. But worship is not necessarily singing. We've heard Kelly Doherty for many years say when he was leading the music and part of our church here. In essence, worship is nothing more than the surrender and presentation of ourselves to God. Romans 12. And by the way, if you don't come to Sunday school, you are missing out. I can't speak for the children's Sunday school classes because I don't sit in them, but the adult Sunday school class over here is tremendous. And whether it's, it's 
Jeff or Tom or Jim, today Jim spoke about sanctification. Tremendous class hour. Worship, if it is anything, it is simply surrender of self to Christ. Romans 12.1 I urge you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present yourselves, your bodies, to Christ as living and holy sacrifices, which is your spiritual service of worship. This is what is acceptable to God. It is not about what we are doing in the name of worship. It is about a yielding of self to him. He wants us. And if, and if whatever I'm doing, whether it's praying or reading my Bible or singing, if it does not lead me to a presentation of myself to him as an offering to God, it isn't worship. Children can understand that. God made you. He made you for himself. All he wants you to do is yield to him. Present yourself to him. A child can understand that. And parents can be used of God to encourage this. Where do babies come from? Young children will ask. They come from God. You came from God. And you are, have been made by God, for God, therefore yield to God. It's worship. How do you minister to God? A God who needs nothing. How do you minister to God who needs nothing? Isn't that an amazing concept? Minister to God. I'm the one who needs to be ministered to. But God wants to be ministered to and can be ministered to. Again, we make it so complicated. We make it about all that we do for God. Think of a child. How can a child minister to God? This child did. Just lives as a child. Unto God. Everything that God gave that child to do, sweeping the floors of the temple, whatever it was, dusting things off, trimming the candle wicks, little stuff that children can do. He just lived unto God. Not thinking... Am I doing enough? Is, does this matter? Are other people noticing? Does it have any impact? Does it count? But Lord, here I am. And you simply, humbly live life as unto the Lord. And it is a ministry to God. Because God is, is almost unconsciously being recognized in every aspect of life. And God is blessed. God is ministered to. Second point, clearly, children can understand and accept God's calling upon their lives from a very early age. At what age can a child receive Christ? probably earlier than we think. No one can say for sure. And no two children are the same. 
But if a child at three years old, like Samuel, can worship God and minister to God, then I'm inclined to think three years old is not too young. A person with the capacity of a three-year-old can know God, can know that he is a child of God. So those that have mental limitations can know God intimately. They may not be people who accomplish great things in this world, but they can be people who worship God and minister to God. And I can't wait to be before God's throne and see how God honors those as being among the highest when we thought they were the lowest. But they lived a life of worship and ministry unto God with perhaps the mental capacity of a three- or four-year-old. We will be astounded in heaven at who's going to get the recognition. Our oldest son, I still am marvel. It was a God thing. At three years old, we were not talking to him about receiving Christ. We hadn't had that conversation yet. But I look back on it, and it seems the Spirit was having that conversation with him. Patsy and I were just reading the Bible with him one evening. And, and I don't even remember all the details of it, but he jumped up from the couch and went over and climbed up on top of the piano bench and started banging on the piano keys at three years old, singing a song to God. Jesus, come into my heart. Over and over again. And Pat's and I are looking at each other going, where did that come from? (laughs) Only God knows. But it sure seemed to us as parents that that boy truly became a child of God at three years old. That's something that I can't tell him. That's what God has to tell him. And maybe... To my knowledge, God's never told him anything different, but maybe God will someday. But we should not underestimate God's power to work in little children. They can have a relationship with God. They can be saved as very young children. It is clear from this passage that favor and strength are from God. And we should pray for and encourage that they would seek the favor of God and the strength of God. Every dad wants his boys to be well-liked and to be strong. Who doesn't? Nobody wants a kid that nobody likes, right? And nobody wants a kid that's a weakling and, and just a sissy mama's boy. We have to be so careful about what we're orienting our children toward, don't we? 
Because what we really should want for them is to want to have the favor of God and to know the strength of God. It's not about whether they can play football or baseball or be athletic, but whether they can have the character of Christ and the strength of God in their souls. I believe it's clear in this passage that environment is less of a powerful influence than God is. I believe that God gives us power of choice somewhat, not absolutely, but some power of choice as parents in the lives of our kids. Maybe more than our children would like us to assume sometimes. And in that power of choice, one of the responsibilities we have is to seek to protect our children. God wants to use parents to provide protection. Much of that is through prayer, more than we realize. Secondarily, it would be through choices like what friends they have, what schools they go to. Is it public school, home school, private school? Those are secondary choices to pray for their protection. But nonetheless, those are all choices parents have to make. Sometimes the choices are out of our hands. A child may have no other option but to go to a public school that we would not choose for them. Or to have a teacher that we can do nothing about. Or to have neighbors that we couldn't have said anything about whether they're going to move into that house or not. Not all things are within our control. And as a parent, it can bring great anxiety because you can see the influences that are coming to bear on your children. When I was in the sixth grade, I was standing in line in the cafeteria next to one of my best friends. And all of a sudden, I felt the strong hand of the teacher grab me by the shirt, pull me out of line, and take me to the back of the line. Just upset. And I'm going, what? And she goes, that boy isn't good for you. You don't need to have him as a friend. Wow. I don't think teachers do that too much today anymore. But that teacher knew my family. And she apparently saw something in me she liked and something in him she didn't like. And so she was exercising her, her teacher authority and she's going to change things. But she really had no power over me and my friendship with that boy. And I knew it as a sixth grade child. She can drag me out of line every day if she wants. But she can't keep me from being friends with that boy if I want to be friends with him. I can't even make my kids eat their peas. <laughs> We've all been through that battle, right? Man, if they want to just clench down and not eat, they're not going to eat. But we think we have so much control. And we can worry and fret as though we have no God when it comes to the influence that we see others having on our children. 
I have to believe, and this passage helps me, that environment, other relationships that I have no control over, those things are less powerful than God and will not overcome a surrendered heart to Christ. The greatest danger for my children is not the influence that comes to them, but it's simply whether or not they will yield to him. And God may use those awful influences that I don't want in my child's life to cause my child to see his terrible need for Jesus. The scripture says, greater is he who is in us than he that is in the world. That is true. And if my child has Jesus, he has everything going for him. And if he doesn't have Christ, I don't need to be concerned about all the other influences. That child needs Jesus. That's the main thing. I believe that this passage points to the joy of surrender. God is our hope in our salvation, no one else. Personal faith, personal choice is necessary. It doesn't just depend upon the parents. Each child must choose to embrace what the parents taught. And if they don't, there's nothing we can do. God is all-powerful. He can protect and he can cause growth in any environment. That doesn't mean that we shouldn't be concerned about the environment, but we should not lose hope. God can bring growth, spiritual intimacy with him in any environment. God's way is going to say in chapter 2 and verse um, 30 is to honor those who honor him and to lightly esteem those who despise him. That is a truism. But that doesn't mean that I can make my children honor God. Ultimately, all I can be concerned about is whether I honor him or not. Life is not mechanical. It is not lived by principles. It is relational. We either trust him or we're trusting something else or someone else. Our trust might be in principles and not in Jesus. The crushing of life, as Hannah went through, is designed to kill all confidence and all hope other than trust in God himself, bringing us to, I have no one but him. I had a friend who used to say, if you buy something at the store and it's defective, you take it back for a refund. If your children are defective, give them back to God. They came from him. Give them back to him. And I thought that was funny. And he wasn't just trying to... He was speaking with some seriousness. So I knew him personally. And he had one that was walking with God and another that was not. And basically what he was trying to say, 
I raise them the same. I love them the same. But I have no control over the choices that they make. And all I can do is what I did the day they were born. Surrender them to God. And every day, continue to surrender them to God. Children are a miracle and a gift from God. What makes us think that raising them is up to us? If they're a miracle, God created them. And they're a gift, God gave them. And what makes me think that I have the ability or the wisdom to have them turn out the way God wants them to turn out? Any more than with our own salvation. It is the gift of God. And growth comes from God. God gave salvation. And God gives growth. God gives children. And God causes their growth. Salvation is from God and so is sanctification. Our children are from God. And so is their well-being. We pray. We walk humbly. We want to model a life of worship and ministry to God. But the most powerful influence we will ever have in their life is that humble example. I need Jesus. And I don't have all the answers. And you need Jesus. And I will never be what in your life what only God wants to be and can be. And I hear the bell. I'll close us in prayer.